Well, uh, I clearly am not Jacob. I'm a, um, I'm a guest speaker guy, so um, that, that should be obvious by now to most of you. My name is Ryan Pale. I'm the, um, I'm the Youth Impact guy. I, um, I've been on staff here at Grace as the community outreach guy for about 10 years right now. And um, yeah, gosh, 10 years. Uh, but anyways, and so uh, my main ministry is, uh, is a mentoring program. We work with marginalized youth and children in the Bryan College Station area. Thank you. And uh, um, essentially what we do is we pick up students once a week and we do a youth group kind of thing and we do a VBS kind of thing and, and we pair people, we pair college students with, these, with our low-income children and youth and we get to see the Lord do some amazing uh, things. I, uh, when I did it as a college student, I was involved with it uh, when I was a college student, I met my wife doing it. It's one of those things where we were um, kind of both uh, loving on the kids and loving this, these communities. And we kind of looked aside and said, hey, you're cool. Let's hang out. And so we, uh, we met and that was very fun. And then we, uh, we got married 11 years ago, 11 and a half to be exact. And then um, we have two amazingly beautiful children who are both six years old at the same time. We had twins. And uh, it's my policy, it's a personal policy that I don't carry or I don't show pictures of my kids um, up on the slideshow um, because, I mean, honestly, they're so beautiful that it would ruin any other kid that you will ever come across. Like you'll, you'll, hold, uh, you'll hold them as a standard and just be disappointed every time you see a kid from now on. So I'm really doing that as a service to y'all um, so you don't you know, give kids ugly faces or anything like that. So we have two kids who are six years old and um, just started kindergarten and, uh, and it's really an amazing thing. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around being a dad and I have kindergartners. Um, so uh, we've been married. My wife and I have been married for 11 years, as I said. One of the cool things, um, I'm assuming not many of y'all are married yet. Um, one of the cool things, one of the perks of marriage that I had no idea was coming my way was my capacity to mooch off of more people just increased just by virtue of being married. I have now two new parents who can pay for my meals whenever we go out to eat at fancy restaurants. So when it was just my parents, I would always, you know, they would take the bill and I'd say, okay, cool. We kind of expected that. But now I have Andrea's mom or Andrea's dad and they're willing to pay and much more able to pay for some of the meals that we eat. And so whenever the bill comes out, we'll go eat somewhere nice like Christopher's or something like that. And whenever the bill comes out, then I have this like kind of, I gotta go, I mean, you gotta go for the wallet, you know, I gotta pretend like I'm at least trying to take up the bill, and so I go for my wallet, and then we enter into this, like, battle, this sort of, uh, you pay, no, you pay, you no, you pay. okay, you win. Like, internally, I'm not interested in winning that battle at all. Uh, so finally, you know, we're kind of exchanging uh, these little quirky statements, and then finally he wins, the waitress is sitting there saying, somebody just make up a decision, <laughs> I gotta pay this, uh, pay this bill. So anyways, he wins, and, uh, and that's great, good news for me. So, uh, you know, y'all don't have in-laws, y'all haven't, been, y'all haven't been a part of it on that level, but I'm sure that you've probably either seen or been a part of those weird conversations, those little battles that go on between people whenever the bill comes, and you're like, um, I'll get it, no, I'll get it, no, I'll get it, no, I'll get it, and it's just, it's, it's weird, and it's awkward, and, but here's what's going on there, that is a power struggle, like that is me saying, I'm not going to relinquish my power to another person. That is uh, essentially me saying I can't, whenever I'm with my father-in-law, I'm saying either A, I can't pay for my food, B, I can't pay for yours and my food, or uh, C, I just don't want to owe you any debts. And so it's this, essentially I'm giving my power, I'm transferring my power from me to him. And this is exactly why whenever we uh, get into these battles and we lose the battle, then uh, we say, okay, I'll get it next time. 
Why? Because we don't want to owe anybody any debt. We don't want to feel uh, in it, indebted to another person, and, so we, um, and we certainly don't know how to accept free gifts most of the time. And one of the things that's so powerful about that illustration, that sort of power struggle, is for many of us in here, certainly myself, that's the closest that I'll ever come to depending on another person or another system to dole out food in exchange for a, a, a disempowering of who I am. In other words, that's the only time that I'll exchange my humanity, my identity for food services because I'm completely at another person's mercy. And that's exactly what social justice is. What we're going to talk about, we're talking about justice for the poor. Many times the programs that we have is basically we're dehumanizing the poor in the way that we engage them. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see, we're going to look at what the Bible says. We're going to look at what culture says about, um, about doing justice for the poor. But a couple of things that I want to um, let y'all know. Uh, first is, there's probably as many definitions of social justice as there are people in this room. There's something that comes to mind, a different thing may come to mind for, for all of us when we think of social justice. And one of the things that's, that I think we boil it down to, I'm going to make it just as simple as possible, is social justice is social righteousness. It's maybe a different way to put it. Social justice is God calling his people and his church to interact with those who are hurting in the community around them or abroad. It's a call, it's a command to go out and to do justice where justice is missing. It's based on, it's based on the fact that we are all made in God's image. Whether you're a, a prostitute or an exotic dancer or a drug dealer or the, the guy that we went to high school with that was always in trouble, that always made poor decisions. All of those people are made in the image of God and therefore, if they're made in the image of God, they have a divine right to my time, to my attention, to my love, and to my concern. That is social justice. It means that there's no sort of fringe people out there that I don't really um, care about. There's no people that should be living in my culture that I'm not deeply concerned about, concerned for. So when we think of social justice, this is exactly what we're going for. Tonight's going to be a little bit different. I think uh, we are a Bible church, and so we study the Bible, which uh, naturally we should do. I'm going to take us a little ways before we get into the scriptures. The reason is because I want us to understand what our culture is saying about the poor. What are the voices of culture that are influencing the way that we view the poor in our nation? Um, And so we're going to hash that stuff out, and then we're going to get to what God thinks about that. So the first thing our culture says, we're going to start with politics. I know it's not a good idea to just go straight in and say, hey, politics, and to speak about politics from the pulpit, usually bad idea. Um, we're going to go there a little bit, but rest assured that I'm not taking a side. I never take a side with this stuff. I, at least I think that Christ offers a better politic than our po- American politics. So I'm going to critique both of them uh, tonight. So we'll start with the political left. The political left and justice for the poor, uh, essentially what the political left says is there are all these systems that are out there that are obstacles for the poor. There are all these systems that are keeping the poor suppressed, keeping them from rising up, keeping them from succeeding within our communities. So there's all these oppressive sort of systems, whether it's racism or, or poor schools or not enough access to, um, uh, to good health care, whatever it is. And so the left says, let's deal with these systems. Let's give them more resources, more money, more better education. Let's give them uh, better insurance. All these things, let's give them, let's give them, let's give them. And all we're doing is we're addressing the systems, okay? But we haven't done anything, if we're the political left, we haven't done anything to bring about the internal, the individual transformation of those who are impoverished. 
So we completely ne- neglect the internal part of the man to, to address the outside part of, of people. And so what we do if we're the political left is we turn, we turn our constituents into beggars, perpetual beggars. We turn them into people who become so dependent on the system that it's like another drug that keeps them down. I've talked to um, friends of mine who their, grandparents, their parents were on welfare, their grandparents were on welfare, their great-grandparents were on welfare. Uh, the generation of, generations and generations of poverty Welfare was meant to help them, but it hasn't because it hadn't dealt with whatever go- is going on on the inside that needs to be transformed, whatever needs to, be, w- needs to encounter the gospel of Christ. But then we're not going to stay there. Then we have the political right. The political right is kind of the, is the, is the opposite sort of thing. All they're worried about is the internal part of man, and they're completely naive to the fact that there are structures and systems on the outside that suppress the, the poor. And so what they're going to do, they're going to go to the, the, the poor person, the average poor person, or they're going to introduce legislation that's going to say, uh, you need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You need to work harder. You need to show up. You need to stop being lazy. You need to stop making excuses for why you've been poor for generations and generations. You need to just, you just need to grind away and, and climb up the ladder. Everybody has equal opportunity to, to reach the American dream. And so you, poor person, you need to just realize it. You're sitting there in poverty because of your own terrible choices. And they forget the fact that there, may, uh, that there are structures that are set up against the poor. And we'll definitely get into those uh, shortly. So they do the complete opposite of what the political left does. As a, um, as a case in point, there's a SNAP program. I don't know if y'all are familiar with the SNAP program. Essentially, this is the food stamp program. A couple of weeks ago, there was legislation uh, introduced that uh, they were wanting to, uh, to slash about $40 billion from the food stamps program nationally. And so the right, the political right, who is, uh, who's been highly critical of our food stamps program, what they've done is they've said, you've got all these people who are, um, who are abusing the system. And, and there's a documentary on this Oh man, this 30-year-old, just worthless guy, surfer guy who uses his food stamps. He either sells them or he buys like caviar or sushi, stuff like that. And so they have this guy and they say, see, this is what's happening with the food stamp program. We're, we're empowering people like this to be lazy bums. Not to mention the fact that we are needing to reduce some of our budget. That's kind of important in the economic climate that we're in right now. So anyway, so that's the political right. Then you have the political left who says, we can't just do that. We can't just slash those prices. The thing is, the people need us. What the political left has done is they have increased the budget for welfare, for stamps, um, over the past, uh, since it's existed, but even especially since the recession, they've gotten it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to where anybody who's anybody can get access to these things. And what they've done is, again, they've created more people who are completely dependent on the system. They've disempowered them. They've dis- dehumanized them. And so the political right and the political left have, have approached social justice from terrible perspectives. They are not terrible, well-intentioned, but they've done a disservice to our nation's poor. These are two major cultural influences that we have in our, in our world. The next one is our socioeconomic situation, our class. Um, we have, even within this room, we probably have people who grew up low income all the way to the wealthy, the, the wealthy 1%. We may have that even in this room. And, and, and so depending on where we fall on that spectrum may influence the way we view those who are poor. If I grew up and I had a, a single parent who raised me, I'm, I live out in the sticks and, and um, uh, I basically live in a shack in the middle of the woods and I don't have food to eat, I'm going to be a little bit more compassionate toward those who don't have food to eat. I'm going to be compassionate toward those who are impoverished, seeing how difficult it is for somebody to get out of that. 
But then if I'm, if I'm the wealthy person, I've never had, my school didn't have poor people in it. My, um, my church didn't have poor people in it. The grocery stores I went to, none of that stuff had poor people in it. In fact, the only poor people I saw were the people on TV who were stereotyped or the people on the news who were, criminal, who were criminals. And so what I've done is I've formed, because of where I stand, my socioeconomic status, because of where I stand, I'm, I'm, uh, I have an image of those who are impoverished as being criminal, negligent, whatever stereotype it is. Another voice is ourself. Oh man, powerful, powerful, powerful influence. And, and by self, I mean flesh, the, the, the biblical term of, of, of flesh, our sin nature. Um, there are a couple aspects of this I just want to hit on. The first one is poverty is certainly not limited to, um, to one ethnicity, not, not by any stretch of the imagination. However, certain ethnic groups are con- constantly impoverished because of racism, because of overarching racism in many aspects of our system, deep-seated racism. But with us, individually, within all of us, we have racist tendencies. I, I kind of refuse to believe that there are people in here, myself included, who don't have deep down within us roots of racism. Uh, we're arrogant, we're proud, we're prideful, and the Holy Spirit is constantly churning that stuff up and giving us victory, but, but it's within all of us to put ourselves above other human beings, and that's sin, and we need to call it what it is. But I'm not going to leave it there. I'm going to talk a little bit more about these racist tendencies. We can, we can talk about, uh, there's a guy, um, Joe Fagan, who's a sociology professor at, um, at A&M, amazing, amazing writer and uh, philosopher and sociologist. By no stretch of the imagination is he a Christian. But what he does is he introduces this concept of front stage and backstage racism. And what he says is you have people on the front stage. The people who are on the front stage are the guys who are wearing the white sheets, the white hoods, or they have swastikas tattooed in their foreheads, skinheads. They do terrible, terrible things. All the while, the average person can kind of stand back here in the little wings of stage in the backstage and we can we can set ourselves apart from this person we can say those people are awful those people are horrible they're filled with hatred and they need this world need, needs to be rid of that hatred and these people are evil and so we can sit back here and we can pretend and we can convince ourselves that we don't have racist tendencies all the while we stand in the backstage and we make jokes or when we watch the news, we make certain interpretations about what's going on in the inner city, or we, um, or we trash other people. We walk a little bit faster to our cars whenever we see somebody of a different ethnicity. But all the while, we're justifying ourselves because we're not like them. This stuff over here needs to be repented of. It needs to be uprooted, and the Holy Spirit needs to do a big work in that. Many of us have that uh, passed down to us from generations of people, but it needs to be dealt with. Another thing that influence, another cultural voice that we have influencing um, how we view the poor is our experiences. So I don't know if y'all have ever had those times when you, you may see a, a homeless uh, person, they come up to you on the street and they give you the same spiel they probably gave the 40 people before you and they say, you know, I've fallen on hard times and, and, and can you help me out just a little bit? And maybe you give them cash against your better judgment and, and they walk away. They don't even say thank you. And you think, that's not cool. Or maybe you tell them, hey, I'm not really comfortable with giving money to you. I'm not entirely sure what you're going to spend the money on. And so, but I do want to respect you and, and why don't you come and eat lunch with me? Let's sit down and have a bite to eat. I'd love to get to know you as, a, as, a, as an individual. And the person cusses you out and says that you're a bad Christian and all that stuff. Um, that could happen. So these experiences may 
build into what we, how we view the poor, those who are impoverished. When those things happen to us over and over and over again, we're not excited to give. We're not excited to enter into the lives of those who are hurting and who are suffering. Culture is very powerful. Now what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what the scriptures say about the poor. Now here's, um, here's what I want to just talk about briefly. Um, there are little snippets, little verses here and there. There's a James 1.27 about um, pure and undefiled religion before our God and fathers, that you care for the widows and orphans, keep yourself unstained from the world. We have these little sort of token verses that we can use, the, the, the t-shirt verses. Uh, those are great and those are wonderful and those articulate the heart of God and, and his desire for the church. But what I want to do is I want us to take a step back to look at all of the scriptures, to look at the entirety so that you can see God's heart for the poor threaded throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, and finally throughout the church for us. So we're going to go through each one of these. The first one, judges are to be unbiased to the status of those who they're judging. So essentially, if I'm a, if I'm a judge in Israel, I see two people that are standing before me. I see an Israelite who is, uh, you know, he's got wads of cash falling out of, the back po- out of his back pocket. I see him and I see some dirty Gentile standing in front of me, smells bad, probably hadn't eaten or showered in, in, in weeks. I see these, these two people, the scriptures tell me that because they're both made in the image of God, I show no preference for one over the other even though this one might benefit me a little bit more to show preference for them. This is unprecedented in the ancient Near East. Christianity or uh, Judaism is the only thing that has uh, laws like this. The law of Jubilee, uh, this is something that is powerful. It comes at great expense for those who participate in it. Uh, but essentially what happens is every 50th year, um, the, the, uh, the Israelites are to relinquish any land that they acquired. They're supposed to give it back to the family that they acquired it from. Same with slaves. Any slaves that they acquire, they're supposed to give the slaves back to the families from whom they acquired them. This is crazy. This is insane that anybody would do this in the ancient Near East. This came at tremendous expense and sacrifice to those who participated in it. No, nobody did this. I, the reason I'm harping on this is because I, I feel like I hear all the time that, that people are saying, oh, Judaism just, you know, they, they borrowed their religious system from other cultures. I'm like, no, this stuff proves it. There's no way. Nobody else showed this type of equality in ancient Near Eastern culture. They could gather crops according to Exodus 23. They could gather crops from others' land. Essentially, um, I, I'm, so let's say I'm a, I'm a, a, a farmer and on, uh, on the seventh year, I leave my land. I don't even try to harvest my land. I don't plant anything on it. I just let this sort of natural stuff come up. And I'm not, I don't harvest the land. What I do is I allow other people, I allow the poor in my community to come and to gather food off of my land. And it's theirs for the taking. And I do so with joy and with gratitude knowing that it's from the Lord. Gleaning, this is, um, this is whenever the, the people, if they had wheat, for instance, they go through the first harvest and they, they cut everything down with a, with a sickle and a ton of it falls to the ground. I'm, some numbers I saw were like 30% of the harvest falls to the ground. And so obviously, if you're a farmer and you see 30% of your crop on the ground, you're gonna go back through and you're gonna rake it up and have 30% more. But God says, no, if you are my righteous people and you have the heart for the poor that I have for the poor, you're going to allow those who are impoverished and who are desperate and destitute to come to your land and to pick up all of your food that's left on the ground. Debts are forgiven every seven years. Uh, Again, powerful. If somebody comes up to me in the sixth year and they say, hey, I need to borrow some money, I'm not supposed to say, hmm, 
year number seven is coming up. Uh, why don't you wait for another year and then I'll, I'll give you the loans where I can get everything back. No, you give to the person regardless of when you are in the seven year. And then on the seventh year, you forgive their debt. The law of redemption, essentially, if I found myself in, in, in hard times, uh, my family was down and out, I could sell myself or child into, um, into another household. This is pretty common at the, at the time. And so I could sell and make some money. And then whenever I make up that money, whenever I can afford it, I go and I buy my family member back. And if I'm the person who bought the, this sounds so weird, if I'm the person who bought the child, if I'm the person who bought the child, then I give back to the family. Again, unprecedented. Um, the uh, Isaiah 58 through 61 this is going to set the, really set the backdrop for where we're going to go with what Christ is preaching. Um, Isaiah 58 through 61, in fact, the whole latter part of Isaiah is talking about what the world is going to look like when the king of Israel sits on the throne in, in Jerusalem and he rules. And his rule is going to be defined by peace, by prosperity, by the nations coming to him and worshiping the one true God. There's going to be no war There's going to be no poverty. There's going to be no illness. There's going to be no death. When the righteous one of Israel comes and sits on the throne in Jerusalem, this is what the world is going to look like. And Israel longed for this to happen. Finally, um, God takes this very seriously. In, In fact, he takes it so seriously that whenever people disobey, they're destroyed. (laughs) Whenever people are oppressing the poor, taking advantage of the poor, they're destroyed. We hear about in Sodom, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, they, they had this, these crazy sexual exploits that were going on. But in Ezekiel, we read that God didn't just destroy Sodom because of that stuff. He also destroyed Sodom because she oppressed the poor. Because the rulers, the rich, the wealthy oppressed the poor. Almost every other prophet that we have in the Old Testament that talks about destruction for, um, for Jerusalem or for uh, Israel, they say this is because, one, idolatry. Almost always it's idolatry, but almost always Second thing is because they oppressed the poor. They didn't show kindness, compassion, care, or concern for the poor. So I got to look at that and say, what does that mean for us? What does that mean that God wants for us to do uh, in regards to the poor? What does it look like for the church now? Then finally, after this, Israel was idolatrous and they oppressed the poor and, and they were sent into exile and for hundreds of years they were passed around. Israel and Judah were passed between different rulers, different oppressive rulers, had no respect for them as a people, had no respect for their religion, had no respect for their sense of identity, of national identity, had zero respect for who they were as people. And they got passed around, the Seleucids, Ptolemies, Greeks, Romans, everybody passed them around and, and nobody respected who they were. In fact, all these rulers sort of dehumanized the people of Israel. And all the while they're sitting there saying, Lord, Isaiah 58, Isaiah 61, you said that this is going to go away. You said that you're going to free the captives. You're going to free those who are oppressed. And they're sitting there being passed around from generation to generation and being oppressed. And they're sitting there saying, when? When is this going to happen? When are you going to send your deliverer? When are you going to send the king, the righteous king, to sit on the throne in Jerusalem? For generations they're saying this. And they're waiting and waiting and waiting. Can you imagine waiting for your Savior to come? And then Jesus shows up. In Luke 4, it's going to be our main text. In Luke 4, um, what's just happened in the very beginning of the chapter is Jesus is on the scene. 
And, and there's, there's all these sort of murmurs about, oh man, the king of Israel has come. God is with us. Everybody's kind of talking, they're whispering about, they've heard of other messiahs that have come and they've made false claims about it, but there's a sort of, I mean, you've been hopeless for years. There's a sort of hope, man, could this be the one? So then Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tempted after fasting for 40 days. He goes and he has this epic encounter with Satan and Satan's trying to get him to basically rule the world through the same power and corruption that he's ruled the world for so long. And he's saying, Jesus, just do this. Rule the world as I have. And Jesus said, I'm not ruling the world through the typical forms of power. I'm ruling it through transformation of people, through transformation of this world. And so he finishes this showdown, this epic showdown in the wilderness with Satan. And then he, man, he starts preaching. He starts sharing hope, the hope of Isaiah 58 through 61. The captives are going to be set free. And so he finally, he finds himself in Nazareth in the synagogue It says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read the scriptures. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were, were fixed on him, of course. Imagine sitting there just like this. Imagine you've been oppressed and you've been hated for so long. You've lost your sort of corporate identity, your identity as the church. You've lost that. It's been completely disrespected for years, neglected for years. Your parents and your grandparents and their grandparents have, have, have waited for the Messiah. And all of a sudden you see some cat stand up and he starts saying, it's here. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. I'm setting you guys free. Can you imagine inside of you what wells up when you're saying, oh my gosh, could this be? I've been oppressed. I've been impoverished for so long. The spirit of the Lord is in here, is with us. And then he says, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine what it's like to finally see, oh my gosh, what we've been waiting for for years. My grandparents talked about this. is now happening right here in our midst. Can you imagine the jubilation that happens, that comes with that? But it didn't take too much longer. And then he started saying, but guess what? We're bringing the Gentiles in, those, the, those dirty people who you always separated yourself from. We're bringing them into the family And then all the people who are so excited, all of a sudden they get angry. And they threaten to kill Jesus (laughs) right after this. Crazy. But a couple of things that I want to camp out on uh, here with Jesus. One is that this isn't spiritual blindness. He's not talking about spiritual blindness. He's not talking about spiritual oppression. He's not talking about spiritual captivity. He is talking about literal, physical blindness. Literal, physical captivity. The significance of this is that what's he do from here? He goes on, he starts healing the paralytics, healing the blind, healing the lepers, going to people who nobody would touch with a 10-foot pole and he's going to them and he's reminding them of who they are and, and, and God and they're having this encounter with Christ and their faith is healing them. It's powerful. And one of the things that we should notice is the message of Christ and the ministry of Christ. These aren't two separate things. They go hand in hand. The message and the ministry of Christ are the same things. 
But so often today, we separate them, the message of Christ and the ministry of Christ. And what that looks like for those of us today, when we separate that is, I'm going to do everything I can to get as many people saved as possible. I'm going to tell them that life is going to just stink, but then once you get to heaven, everything's going to be okay. And I remove myself from the responsibility and from the ministry of actually bringing about transformation now. The message and the ministry are absolutely connected. And then we do a tremendous disservice to the ministry of the gospel when we don't bring about transformation as a result of it. I mean, how many times do we do that? How many times do we focus just on getting people saved and we do that to the detriment of actually getting people whole in this life? It happens all the time. So if Christ believed it was powerful, certainly it's powerful to us. Just as Jesus even says, just as the Father sent me, so I send you into the world. He's given us all the power and all the authority to accomplish these things. Why don't we, why don't we use it? Finally, you may be sitting here and saying, oh, okay, what are we, we going to do? All right, Ryan, you blabbered on about social justice, justice for the poor. Um, it's great. What, what am I supposed to do about it? I don't exactly interact with the poor often. So the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is to serve people differently. In, uh, in Youth Impact, the ministry, that I, uh, the ministry that I was mentioning earlier, uh, we have this sort of maturity process. It's called Pity, Compassion, Action. So those of us who first um, get into the ministry, we go into the neighborhoods, we go into these, the, 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 this government housing, and we, we go there and uh, we roll up in our Mercedes-Benz or, or Nissan Titan. That's what I have, Nissan Titan. Uh, we roll up there and then we, um, we walk away and we're like, oh my gosh, these people have nothing and I have everything. What a spoiled brat I am. I have so much and they have so little. Gosh, Lord, I'm so grateful for what you've blessed me with. And all we do is we pity what comes from that is a, is a pitiful heart. We, so we go to the, the people that we're meant to serve who are just as made in the image of God as we are and we say, oh my gosh, you have nothing, you poor, pitiful person. Come hang out with me and I'll get you more stuff. People feel that. I don't want to be pitied. Nobody wants to be pitied. So we don't camp out there. We move hopefully in maturity. As we get to know the people that we're serving, we get to compassion if pity is saying, oh my gosh, I have so much and they have so little, then compassion is saying, why do I have so much and why do they have so little? Really, what's, what's going on here? Because all the things, all the assumptions that I brought in before I actually got to know the people that I'm working with, all these assumptions that I bring to the table, I'm starting to realize they might not be true. What really is going on here? So I have compassion but that's not enough. That's not what Christ calls us to. He calls us to actually have some action. Okay, what are you going to do about it? Okay, so this is a process of meaningfully serving people. Too many times we go and we serve people out of pity. There, there are missionaries that are overseas, pastors that are overseas who have people come in and they, they do these sort of pitiful projects and, and the pastors say, all you people have done is created beggars out of my people. You've come in and you've get, given them nice things that they become dependent on and and then you leave and they're stuck begging for more stuff. So I want y'all to serve people differently. The next thing is I want y'all to view people differently. One of the, one of the most uh, powerful 
encounters that I've had. Uh, Ten years ago, I was in downtown Atlanta, and uh, I don't know if y'all been to downtown Atlanta, or I guess any downtown for that matter, um, has a, a, a large homeless population. So I'm in downtown Atlanta, and I see this guy coming at me. Clearly, he's a homeless dude. This guy is checking up on the streets. Um, I see him approaching me, and I'm like, oh, great. So then I start to walk a little bit faster, see him out of the corner of my eye, and I say that little prayer that he's probably been prayed over so many times that day, which is, oh, Lord, please don't let him come anywhere near me. Uh, but um, he does. He comes close, he approaches me, and he gives me the spiel. The same spiel that he's given to everybody else that I saw him moving around to. He gives me the spiel. Oh, sir, you know, I, I, I've been having trouble finding a job. Nothing's really working out. My family has done whatever to me, and, and, and I'm down and out. Could you spare some change? Hmm. I'm sure that's happened to some of y'all in here. Now, let's go back to our cultural voices. The middle class in me wants to ask the question and say, Okay, sir, I'm looking at this as, this is an investment opportunity that I have here. Uh, so I look at this guy, and, and internally I'm asking, one, what, how did you get to be poor to begin with? Is this addiction? Is this a legitimate issue that, that you know, you lost your job and, and it was completely beyond your means? I'm asking these questions. How did you, how really did you get to become so poor and impoverished on the streets? The assumed answer is because he made stupid decisions for a very long time. The second question that I have as a middle-class informed person is I'm saying, okay, well, let's say I take a risk. Let's say I take a shot on you. What are you going to do with my money? And what's really behind that is, are you going to use my money to buy whatever it is that's kept you in perpetual poverty? Are you going to use it for booze? Are you going to use it for drugs? That's my middle-class informed decision is asking those two questions. My political left is looking at this guy and he's saying, oh my gosh, his name is Thomas, by the way. My middle class, uh, or excuse me, my, um, my political left says, oh my gosh, Thomas. You know what? I bet Thomas, when he was born, his mom could have been on crack. And because his mom was on crack, crack his, his mind just might not have developed. And because his mind didn't develop, he, he may not even know right from wrong. He may not even have the ability to choose right over wrong. Or he may have tried to get a job, but because of ra- racist tendencies that are out there, he can't get a job. Or maybe he did something dumb and he's got a felony on his record and he shows up for an interview and when they find out he has a felony, he can't get a job. All real, all legitimate things, by the way, all of these. So I do that and so then I'm like, oh my gosh, Thomas, let me give you every, everything in my wallet. And I, and I pass out money. Um, the political right in me says, Thomas, no, I'm not going to give you money. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you some wise advice. Wake up early in the morning, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, take a bath in whatever bathroom that you have access to, take a shower, whatever it is, clean yourself up. Go in there, any place that has a help wanted job, you go in there, you show up, and you, get, you, you impress the people. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Do it. You can do it, Thomas. You got it. I'll even buy you a suit. I'll throw in a suit so that you look nice and presentable. I'll even do that. That's, that's my political right. Then I have my experiences that look at Thomas and they say, okay, well, I've given to Thomases before. I've given to a few Thomases. And what they've all done is they've abused my gifts. I know that they went and bought booze with the money that I gave them. Or they cussed me out when I didn't give them money. I know what Thomases do. This is the political, cultural influences on me. This is how we interact with the poor. Many of us, I'm sure, have interacted. We've asked those questions. We've had those approaches. 
But then we have another approach. As believers in Christ, as people who respect and honor the image of God in another person, who respect and honor God's role for us as being good stewards of not only the gospel, but also our pocketbooks, um, we have a responsibility. And so we find out, wow, what, is, what, what would the Lord have me do in this situation? I think one of the things that really stood out to me when I was in Atlanta um, 10 years ago, it was powerful for me. I essentially had this sort of vision, whatever it is, and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm asking myself those questions. What are you going to do with my money? And um, how did you get to become so poor? And I just thought about, oh my gosh, what if, what if when I approach Christ in my addictions, in my sufferings, in my sin, I'm absolutely desperate for his grace to forgive me? What if I approached him with all this baggage and he says to me, Ryan, what are you going to do with the gift of grace that I'm going to give you? You going to abuse it? Sometimes. Or what if God says, Ryan, how did you get to become so poor to begin with? Did you make bad decisions? Yup, I did. It's not looking so good for me at this point. But praise the Lord that he doesn't view us the way we view the poor. So my challenge to all of you is to view the poor differently. When you see the beggar walking on the streets, don't pray that he would avoid you, but ask God to give you an opportunity to run to the person of all the people and all the, of all the cultures, of all the religions, of all the faiths that are in the world. We ought to be first in line running toward the beggar, sharing with them the love and the hope of God in Christ. How terrible it is that I'm sitting there trying to hope that this guy doesn't approach me. That's a denial of, my, of the reality of my faith. No, I'm going to him and I'm offering him myself. And that's what Christ calls us to do. That's pure and undefiled religion. In fact, James says, if we go up to that dude and we say, hey, good luck, get a jacket, be warm. Well, our faith is worthless, right? That's exactly what he's talking about. So I need to see people differently and I need to respect and I need to honor them. Finally, um, there are a few there are a few different ministries that we're involved with at Grace. Great ministries. I'm just going to run through a few of them. Uh, find out what, if any of these sort of scratch the itch of your heart, then this is great. Um, one of them is called, there's a whole list of them at our, on our website, by the way. So you can go back and visit them. One of them, Aguilan Pregnancy Outreach. They advocate for young moms who feel desperate and alone and, uh, and need some help with parenting classes. Phenomenal program. Uh, these women work diligently to, uh, to pour into women who are um, going through hard times, and they also do adoption services. Another one is Hope Pregnancy Center um, nearby. They basically do the same thing except for college students. Many of them are college students who show up. They didn't mean to be pregnant, but you know what? They are pregnant, and they don't know what to do, and they're scared to death. They're trying to figure out if they want to keep the baby or not, and so they show up at Hope Pregnancy Center, and they encounter the gospel. Can you imagine what it would be like to come to a place of desperation and to meet Jesus? Oh my gosh, this happens at Hope Pregnancy all the time. Another one, if you're interested in helping out with homeless ministries, there's Twin City Mission. They're based in Bryan. They do phenomenal work. They have the soup kitchen. They have the homeless shelter. They're always looking for people to help. Another one is the Bridge Ministry. They're in downtown Bryan, and they're doing many similar things. They don't have a, um, a homeless shelter, but they have a soup kitchen, uh, and they're always, I mean, literally almost every day I'm getting emails from the Bridge. They're looking for people just to come and stuff paper bags, something to help, um, somebody to interact with, the, with their clients. 
would be very helpful. There's another uh, ministry that, that um, has been really amazing. I've gotten to hear about recently, um, but it's called Jesus Says Love. It's, it's, some, it's based out of Waco, and it's these amazing girls who go into silk stocking uh, down the road, and they minister to exotic dancers in there. And there's a powerful and anointed ministry that's happening in the silk stocking monthly. Powerful. There, there's some great, great opportunities out there. So um, check out grace-bible.org and look for something and just get plugged in. The gospel wants you to um, find something that, that fits for you. So I'm going to close this in prayer and then y'all are dismissed. Lord, we give thanks to you. Thank you so much for your grace, which is given freely and deeply to us. Thank you so much that you care for the poor in more ways than we could ever possibly imagine. Thank you, Lord, that when you gave us new hearts, that you also called us to care deeply for the poor, to be concerned about what's going on in their lives. Lord, would you please help us to know what to do? Many of us have no idea how to love and be concerned for the poor, and so please help us. Please stir in our hearts something that we can do and allow us to be transformed by that ministry. We love you so much, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed.